0: It's Monday,
3: October twenty second, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
3: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So frequent listeners to our show will know that one of the topics that we love to cover are topics that scientists have long thought were settled, but all of a sudden are underturned. That's one of my favorite aspects of the scientific method uh, is that we're constantly reevaluating what it is that we think we know when new data show up. To that end, we also like to highlight scientists whose work have, has been kind of forgotten. And so this week's interview is with David Quammen, uh, who's a science writer, has written 15 books. He's also written for a lot of different uh, publications like Harper's and The Atlantic, New York Times Book Review, etc. And he's a contributing writer for National Geographic. He re- recently wrote a book called The Tangled Tree, a radical new history of life in which he discusses aspects of evolution that are often left out of textbooks, uh, at least in people's first encounter with, you know, the theory of evolution. And mainly he focuses on the work of uh, of, a, of a scientist named Carl Woosey and horizontal gene transfer. So this idea that we can actually, in a sense, inherit traits, I don't even know if inherit is the correct word, uh, from other species instead of just from our ancestors.
1: Oh, this is a harken back to our conversations with Carl Zimmer, where we basically have to take those initial sketches that you know even Darwin made of an evolutionary tree and kind of throw out that idea because it's much more intermingled and i guess the word is tangled in this context than than we thought
3: yeah in many ways i actually really like that the sort of visual the the metaphor of the tangled tree uh, and and in and it sort of helps us uh, kind of think about problems that are very relevant to today. So it's not just about the history of life, um, but rather, you know, one of the big problems that we're facing are, are drug resistant organisms that invade us. And in this case, you thinking about horizontal gene transfer, we can kind of imagine how, you know, a mechanism by which um, bugs can become resistant to drugs across a whole series of species that you know doesn't doesn't require every single species acquiring resistance on their own so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview
4: with David Quammen today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed Madison Reed is a company that is revolutionizing the way people color their hair for decades now you've had two options outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of going to a salon Amy Eret, the founder of Madison Reed, started the company because she believes that you deserve better than the status quo. Madison Reed is reinventing the way you color your hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but the reality is you just came from your living room. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered right to your door on schedule for under $25. And you can join the hundreds of thousands of people who have tried and loved Madison Reed at madison-reed.com. Find your perfect shade there. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's madisonreed.com, promo code M-I-N-D-S.
3: News Voice is a new app that's revolutionizing the way we read news. Shaped by its readers, it shows you different perspectives, so it's truly unbiased, open, and democratized. You get all news in one place. One thing that I really like about it is they actually highlight the kinds of biases that people who are writing the news have, so you know exactly where people's prejudices might come in. Download Newsvoice at newsvoice.com slash minds. It's free, so get it now. David Quammen, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
2: Thank you, Indre. Very good to be with you.
3: One of our favorite things on this show is to unearth uh, scientists who have made amazing discoveries, but whose names we don't really know. And your book is actually chock full of people in the (laughs) (laughs) evolutionary biology space. Um, So I want to first talk about... um,
2: Molecular evolutionary biology. (laughs) Yeah uh, even. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, actually let's start there. So you uh introduced a term that I was not familiar with, molecular phylogenetics. So what is that?
2: Molecular phylogenetics is the is the discernment of patterns of relatedness among living creatures uh and the branching of what we commonly called the tree of life using the information in long molecules the sequence of units in long molecules and when they say long molecules what they mean in particular is dna rna and a few select proteins so that's those are the molecules of molecular phylogenetics phylogenetics discerns phylogenies relatedness patterns of of branching and divergence so that's molecular phylo- phylogenetics.
3: So, so you'd think this is kind of that, that you know, molecular phylogenetics and the traditional view or the way that we used to classify species would would sort of come up with the same answer. So from my understanding, the traditional way before we knew a lot about genetics was you look at species and, and you compare things that are similar um, and you kind of you know to do, do a kind of mysterious historical uh kind of puzzle piece put together and and you figure out which species evolved from which ancestors and that's how you kind of draw up a tree. So how in terms of the now if you're looking at strands of DNA, how different is that tree from the one that we would draw or 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 create on the basis of observable traits?
2: Right. Well, the answer is very different. And you're right that the old-fashioned way of doing classifying creatures and figuring out the the patterns of life's history of evolving uh, and diverging and creating biological diversity. The old-fashioned way was essentially um, visual, primarily, morphology, anatomy, looking at creatures, looking at them uh, with the naked eye or looking at them with microscopes or electron microscopes, and also, to a certain extent, biochemistry, physiology, how did they behave? And you got one series of answers about creatures using those methods, but then in the 1970s, a very few scientists using primitive methods of genome sequencing started to do it using RNA and DNA. And, uh, and that's essentially the starting point of this revolution in understanding the tree of life and uh, the starting point for my book, too.
3: Yeah. So, so let's talk about that point. So, so who are these scientists and, and what were they discovering? And, and why don't we all read about them alongside Darwin and all the other you know major players in evolutionary biology?
2: Well, you do now if you read my book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this book was, I think, I, I think it's fair to say, it was overdue to bring this really important revolution in the, the scientific world to the general public. It has, it has, it has been talked about a bit. Some of my uh, science writer colleagues have talked about this. Ed Young and Carl Zimmer know about this, but uh, nobody has written a book about it for the general public really before. Um, So who were they? Well, um, first of all, Francis Crick. Everybody's heard the name Francis Crick, right? One of the co-discoverers of the structure of DNA with James Watson, won the Nobel Prize for that in 1962. Uh, And Francis Crick, a little bit later in the 60s, made a passing comment that was a suggestion, actually, no, it was in the late 50s, a passing comment um, that, oh, somebody eventually should do something that you might call protein taxonomy, which would be using proteins in the sequence of units in proteins as a record of evolutionary change and divergence. But Crick didn't follow up on that. The person who did most immediately and most consequentially was a man named Carl R. Woes, W-O-E-S-E, who I sometimes call the most important biologist of the 20th century that you've never heard of. Most people have never heard of him. But um, molecular biologists have certainly heard of him. He's a huge figure in molecular evolutionary biology. Uh, He appeared on the front page of the New York Times on November 3rd, 1977, above the fold. A picture of him and a story about his first really newsy discovery, which was the discovery of an entirely new kingdom of life that uh, was distinct from the other two major kingdoms, the other two major limbs on the tree of life. And that uh, that group of creatures eventually became known as the Archaea. And we can talk about them, but that uh, he is the first, uh, far from the only, uh, uh, of the scientists who, who made this revolution. And uh, what was important about Woes were two things. First his discovery of the Archaea, but also, equally, maybe even more important, was the methodology that he created for looking at a particular molecule, particular kind of molecule, and using that as the Rosetta Stone for the history of life on Earth. And when you look at that particular molecule, you get answers that are very different from the answers that you get with the naked eye or... Um, judging morphology through a microscope.
3: So yeah, so let's talk about Archaea and uh, its significance and and sort of how he made this discovery. Um, what makes, uh, I guess, microbes in the Archaea uh, kingdom different from bacteria and, and viruses?
2: Right. Well, they are microbes and they look through a microscope very much like bacteria, and they had been taken for bacteria for as long as people had been looking at bacteria through microscopes. Let's set viruses aside because viruses are not, as you know, viruses are not cells. Viruses are these peculiar things. People argue about whether they're alive or not, and they're not even placed on the tree of life in in almost any of its depictions but the two major limbs i referred to were essentially one limb was was all bacteria a kingdom known as the prokaryotes and the other major limb was everything else um known as eukaryotes and um that suggests that they're complex cells um uh, containing cell nuclei and internal organs uh, such as such as mitochondria, the energy packaging organs within um, within complex cells. So you've got bacteria as the one major branch, uh, eukaryotes, uh, meaning animals, plants, fungi, and everything else composed of complex cells with cell nuclei. On the other branch, and uh, Woese um, started looking at the bacteria uh, and sequencing fragments of their genome, essentially sequencing, um, a, uh, I don't want to get too technical here, but he wasn't at first sequencing DNA, he was sequencing RNA. Uh, and there was an RNA molecule um, that was that was a structural component and one of the deepest and most fundamental uh, uh, elements of living cells found in bacteria and in eukaryotes. Called the ribosomes, and the ribosomes are the little, the the little organs that essentially turn DNA information into a physical structure. So all cells, all living cells have ribosomes. They have to. So Woese decided, well, let's look at ribosomes. Let's look at one particular molecule, this RNA molecule that's part of the structure of ribosomes, and let's compare them. And he started doing that. And looking at what he thought were bacteria. And after a while, he picked a particular group of bacteria, bacteria um, known as the methanogens, because they, they generate methane. Um, and he looked at this molecule and found that it was drastically different from all other bacteria, the, the same molecule in all other bacteria. And he went to one of his colleagues at the University of Illinois, a fellow named Ralph Wolff with these results. And he said, Wolf, these things aren't even bacteria. And it was, you know, may sound arcane, but it was a staggering discovery at the time. Uh, And so that was the beginning of his understanding from that molecule that this group, the archaea, are very different from bacteria, even though they look like bacteria. In fact, they are more different from bacteria uh, than they are from us, Um, although they're microbes. Um, and now I, I could talk a little bit about um, some of the you know, uniqueness of archaea, for instance. There. they live. Many of them live in extreme environments. They live in salty environments, acidic environments, low oxygen environments, um, uh, high, high temperature environments. Not all of them. At the bottom of the sea, some of them live. Uh, and they contain different kinds of membranes and a different kind of cell wall than bacteria. But through a microscope, people, as I say, had mistaken them for bacteria. Woes found that in their deepest genomic um, internal structures, they are not anything like bacteria.
3: So what, I guess the question I have here, and it's a little bit hard for me to put into words, but I'll do my best, is that, you know, when we look at like the limbs of the eukaryotic tree or the eukaryotic branch of the tree, I should say, we see a ton of diversity that, you know, is visible to the naked eye. When you look at the limbs of, say, um, prokaryotes, I mean, there there just doesn't seem to be as much diversity, even though I think, you know, in terms of sheer numbers, they outnumber us (laughs) um, many times to one. So, what about archaea? Is that also within that kingdom? How much diversity is there, and why hasn't it uh, sort of, if it has, if it hasn't, reached the kind of biodiversity that eukaryote uh, uh, branches have?
2: Well, the, there are a couple of very interesting, complicated questions embedded in your question, um, uh, and w- an answer to one of those qu- questions is that um, archaea are are difficult to grow in a laboratory and the things that had been classified until this period of time, until this revolution in molecular phylogenetics uh, and consequences that flowed from Carl Woese's work, the things that were known about were things that could be, um, could be cultured and grown in a laboratory. Um, but, uh, these microbes that live 10,000 feet deep in the North Atlantic are very difficult, if not impossible, to grow in the laboratory. Uh, things that live at high temperatures in hot springs in Yellowstone Park, very difficult to grow in the laboratory. Um, so that was one of the reasons their degree of diversity is w- was not known. Um, but again, you mentioned that on the eukaryotic limb of the uh, tree of life, there is all this great diversity that's apparent to the naked eye, this visual diversity. you know um, A yeast cell and a giraffe and a sequoia tree and a human being are all eukaryotes. They all branch from this particular limb. So you can say there's a huge amount of diversity, whereas bacteria over there, they're all these little microbes, these little cells, they all look alike. Where's the diversity? And there was an argument about that. Um, between different schools of classification, different scientific schools, the great um, the great biologist Ernst Mayr at Harvard in those days, um, who had been one of the formulators of of neo Darwinism of the modern synthesis of Darwinian theory, he got in an argument in the pages of uh, Science and the letters of the journal Science, got in an argument with Carl Woese about the significance of the archaea discovery, because Ernst Meyer was saying just what you were asking. Look at these things. They look just like bacteria through a microscope. So uh, it's ridiculous to give them their own kingdom uh, of life. Uh, but Meyer was not taking into account um, the deep genomic difference between archaea and bacteria.
3: Yeah, so let's talk about sort of the, the implications of this now. And
2: right. And let me let me add, Andrew, let me add just one thing to that. The deep genomic difference among these things is important because it goes back to the beginnings of life's diversification. It goes back three billion years or so. So it's enormously uh, valuable uniquely valuable for identifying the earliest stages of evolutionary diversification on earth. And you can't do that with the kind of visual evidence that distinguishes a giraffe from a yeast cell from a human being, because none of that diversity was around back at 3 billion years ago. But this molecule, this molecule that Woese was using, that molecule was around 3 billion years ago.
3: And so one of the fascinating sort of implications of what you write about in your book is this understanding of how uh, natural selection works, or, or at least I should say not even that, of, of sort of how we've evolved. So, um, you know, a lot of us think, think about our own evolution as these, you know, very small, um, often random changes in our genome that, you know, express themselves and then give us, you know, some kind of advantage over people who don't have that particular gene. Um, and so when we think about, like, when I think about, for example, the evolution of the mind and the brain, that's, you know, my my area of, of interest, you know, I think about like, okay, so where did consciousness come from? Well, there are building blocks of consciousness in uh, other animals, and certainly in our ancestors and so forth. And you can kind of see how this very complex phenomenon emerged out of a series of many, 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 many sort of small changes. But one thing that doesn't take into account is horizontal gene transfer, which is like the other major kind of topic in your book. And so can you can you pull together this idea of you know Wose's discovery um, and how that you know sort of led to sort of or 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 what relationship it has with horizontal gene transfer and, and that that side of the story.
2: Right. Okay. Yes. Rich rich question again. A couple of things I want to say about that. First of all, I won't try to say anything much about the origin of consciousness is fascinating as that is your field closest I get to that has been, um, drinking martinis with Daniel Dennett and talking about this. And that's great fun, but I leave the, uh, the origin of consciousness to, to Dan Dennett and to you and, and to others. I'll, I'll leave it to but, Dan too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but, um, you're right that the, the, uh, The orthodox Darwinian explanation for how evolution works is that there are incremental changes, there are point mutations um, that um, result in these small, small, small um, differences among individuals of a population. And then there is competition for resources, and then natural selection um, preserves those that are that happen to be in tiny ways better adapted to the current circumstances than others, and so over time, those those tiny changes are preserved. The ones that are positive, and lineages change over time, and species diverge, and and, and they adapt. Right. The difference um, with the the wave of new ideas that comes from Woese and and the the many other scientists who who followed him is the recognition that there is this phenomenon, horizontal gene transfer, that sometimes genes move sideways across species boundaries, even across family boundaries, even from one kingdom of life to another, Um, that genes and and genetic material can move essentially in an instant sideways and not just be passed um, vertically from parent to offspring, from progenitor to to progeny. uh, genes moving sideways. Now, when I first read about that about six years ago, I said, wait a minute, that's impossible. What? Horizontal gene transfer? No, no, that, that can't be true. And the more I read, the deeper I got into this subject. And that's why I wrote the book. Um, but s- the difference is these new ideas, certainly they don't overturn Darwin. Let's make that clear. Um, none of these, these these scientists are not saying, and I'm certainly not saying that, that these new discoveries um, uh, prove that Darwin was wrong. Darwin was ro- not wrong any more than Isaac Newton was, was wrong when Einstein came along with relativity theory and modified conventional dynamics. Uh, so, horizontal gene transfer, what's significant is that it, it represents a new understanding of the sources of variation. It's not just incremental changes as DNA copies itself within one cell, within one lineage, small mistakes are made. And those incremental changes then become the raw material for natural selection. It's also horizontal gene transfer, which brings, can bring massive changes into a lineage instantly. And then natural selection acts on those changes, those variations also.
3: So that means that we can get... We can inherit, in a sense, or, or we can we can get a trait from a species that is not our own that can actually reshape the way our species proceeds and down its evolutionary path.
2: That's right. And the great molecular uh, m- microbiologist Joshua Lederberg in the 1950s gave a label to this. He was seeing it among bacteria back in the 1950s, uh, and he called it infective heredity. And that's. That's another way to think about it. Instead of being passed down through reproduction, through sexual reproduction or through, uh, through asexual reproduction, uh, the way you know, bacteria reproduce, uh, instead it's, uh, it's uh, evolutionary change that comes sideways. It's horizontal instead of vertical.
3: You know, we might think, OK, I can see how that would happen if I, you know, had a had a virus and it kind of, you know, somehow like HIV, for example, or, you know, so so changed my, you know.
2: Ah, right. Yeah. You know,
3: yeah. but but some of the examples you give in your book are way more fundamental than that. So so tell us about, you know, one of them. I have one in mind, but, you know.
2: Well, you tell me what you uh, the one that I have in mind it involves um, involves it does involve humans and it does involve viruses. This is near the end of the book. This is the recognition that eight percent of the human genome, roughly, and eight percent of the genome of all of us, is viral DNA uh, left from retroviruses that have been captured in our um, in our genomes. Now, a You mentioned HIV. Uh, you know, retroviruses so we know retro means going backwards retroviruses invade cells even invade cell nuclei and then they patch their DNA into the uh, the genome of the cell and then when the cell replicates it replicates the viral DNA and that that aids the virus in replicating itself uh, HIV infects immune cells so it patches itself into the DNA of uh, an of immune cells. And then when they when they replicate, they replicate the viral DNA. And then eventually in a given cell, uh, it bursts open and lots of um, viral particles come out and um, invade the blood. Uh, but if a retrovirus invades a reproductive cell instead of an immune cell, if it invades uh, the cells uh, of an ovary or of testes, or uh, directly invades sperm or eggs, patches itself into the DNA of those cells, then it becomes hereditary. Then it can be passed along. And in that way, we have acquired viral DNA that represents 8% of our genomes. And much of that DNA is silent. It seems to be non-functional. But some of it is still functioning genes, including one gene called Sinsatin2, discovered by uh, a wonderful French scientist named Thierry Heidemann and his group in Paris um, that is crucial in creating the membrane in mammals between the placenta and the fetus. So this is a a viral gene, formerly an envelope gene, creating sort of an envelope around the viral capsule. And now instead of creating that gene, it has been repurposed, changed, adapted to creating a membrane between the placenta and the fetus. And without that membrane, uh, pregnancy in mammals, uh, including human mammals, is impossible.
3: Yeah, so that's kind of amazing when you think about it. Um, that, you know, that that but it's so fundamental to uh, you know, the the genes of the species reproducing, right? I mean, this is like it, it seems like it's it's absolutely critical. So yeah, so how do we reconcile this idea that at some point, you know, our uh ancestors had to go from not being able to do this to getting this ability from a virus and now being able to do it? Like how how does that what does that mean in terms of understanding of how we evolved?
2: Well, this is still mysterious. And Terry Heidman's group, among others, is, are still working on this. But uh, and, and I went to Paris to talk to him, um, spent seven hours talking with him about this and him walking me through his work. And and he was very clear in saying, OK, here's our understanding. This is hypothetical, some of it. But this is what we're working toward to, to test this hypothesis. And that is that there are a number of different genes captured viral genes like this, like the sensitin 2. There's a sensitin 1, and there are other sensitins. Those are in humans. There are other Sincitins in other mammals. They all resemble one another, but they're not necessarily the same gene. Those genes seem to have been successively acquired by different mammals over the last tens um, of millions of years in the course of mammal evolution as improvements on an originally captured viral gene that made possible the very fact of internal pregnancy, made possible the the existence of mammals. Uh, Before mammals, as you know, um, birds and reptiles reproduced by laying eggs, Uh, external um, reproduction. Uh, and they would seal the nutrients in an egg then they would void it. The female would void it from her body and, and then maybe incubate it or make sure it was incubated somehow. Uh, and then the egg would hatch. Um, uh, and that was partly we can guess because there was no ability to have internal pregnancy. Uh, there are problems when you have internal pregnancy, the offspring, uh, contains only 50% of the genes of the mother if it's sexual reproduction. So the mother's body is going to tend to reject that, recognize that as somehow an alien body and and reject it from her body. Uh, This membrane that um, became possible once this virus had been captured in the lineage of animals uh, serves a couple of functions, but one of them seems to be to protect the fetus held internally from the immune system of the mother. Um, this, the same membrane also transports nutrients from the mother to the fetus and transports waste products from the fetus to the mother so she can void them out of her body.
3: It's kind of amazing to think about.
2: It's quite amazing to think about, I, I would say. Um,
3: in, in particular, I happen to be, at this moment, 39 weeks pregnant, and I, I would be happy <laughs> if my body rejected the baby and, and got it out. Uh, but...
2: <laughs> uh, in due time.
3: <laughs> A few more days to go. Um... <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations.
3: Oh, thanks. Um, so, yeah. So, that so that kind of gets us to this this um, kind of question, then, of, of how this discovery, how sort of the prevalence of horizontal gene transfer sort of translates into our understanding of, um, you know, how we evolved. But I, I kind of want to, um, you know, it's, it's a large question to answer. So I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit and and talk about sort of, so so you talk about how um, horizontal gene transfer at least, you know, seems to be responsible for 8% of our, of our DNA, if I'm understanding that number correctly. Is that an, an anomaly from in the human species, is that true of all species that we know about? I mean, like what, what kind of effect does horizontal gene transfer have um, in other species? And is there something about um, Homo sapiens sapiens that makes us, you know, th- do we have more or less of it than, say, other species?
2: Well, the answer to your last question is no, there's probably nothing special about about Homo sapiens, um, modern uh, humans. Um and this sort of thing uh, has, has been occurring over 3 billion, 3.5 billion um, years. Uh, it's in other creatures, too. It's not just captured viruses. It's also... Uh, uh, DNA being um, moved from bacteria into eukaryotes, DNA being moved from one kind of bacterium into another, DNA moving from bacteria to archaea and vice versa, DNA moving every which way across species and kingdom boundaries, and um, and that that even includes uh, bacterial DNA uh, again in us humans, for instance, our Mitochondria, another of the little cell or, organelles, they call them little internal organs. Um, you know, We have, we have uh, lungs and, and livers and heart in our bodies, that we call them organs. And inside a cell, a complex cell, they're, they're organs, too scientists call those organelles and uh, cell nucleus i guess is considered one but um, among the most important is this this little thing called mitochondrion that we have we have many many mitochondria in our cells and those are the organelles that package energy okay make possible um, the the complex physiological operations of of ourselves of eukaryotic cells where did those mitochondria come from? well it turns out um, and this was this was first uh, this this is an old theory that was revived by the great microbiologist Lynn Margulis in the 1960s um, uh, they those these mitochondria came, our cells as captured bacteria, not captured viruses, but captured bacteria. Somewhere in the deep past, two billion years ago or so, um, a, a simpler form of cell either swallowed a bacterium, one bacterial particle, or was infected by one bacterial particle. And instead of being digested or being rejected, it replicated itself. It became useful to the cell within which it had been it was now contained and it gradually evolved into this organelle that we call mitochondria it replicates itself within the cell and it's passed down from 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 mother uh, to offspring in an egg cell which is why which is why mitochondrial dna is uh, uniquely trans- transmitted on the female side why we have an idea that we call mitochondrial Eve. It's passed down in the egg cells. There's very little mitochondria present, if any, in sperm cells. Uh, And it's separate DNA. Well, why is it separate DNA? It's separate DNA because it came originally from a kind of bacterium. And this fact, suggested using microscopic uh, observations by Lynn Margulis, was later confirmed by uh, the team of a man named Ford Doolittle, among others, by sequencing the DNA in mitochondria and finding that it was a very close match to a particular group of bacteria, fancy name, alpha alpha proteobacteria. So, um, so we have in our cells bacterial DNA that came to us uh, exter- from, from external sources.
3: And so one of the other implications of horizontal gene transfer that I think um, you, know, you talk a lot about in your book and that is, is very interesting is this notion that we can all of a sudden uh, inherit or, or or introduce a trait into a species from another species without having to go through all the you know small incremental changes that we think of when we think about natural selection so you know one a particularly relevant uh, implication is antibiotic resistance
2: right right, yes, and I talk about that near the end of the book yes this is the uh, this is the most um, sort of practical and urgent application of of these discoveries and in, in this idea we now know thanks to another interesting scientist that nobody's ever heard of Tsutomu Watanabe Japanese scientist working uh, in a university in Japan in the in the early 1960s he and his colleagues uh, discovered that the spread of antibiotic resistance among uh Bacteria that infect humans was a result of horizontal gene transfer, or as, uh, as, as he said, um, using the same phrase as uh, Joshua Lederberg, infective heredity infective heredity. So we now know that the reason the problem of antibiotic resistance is spreading around the world so quickly, the reason we have these superbugs like MRSA and others that are resistant to five different kinds of antibiotic and and are killing people, uh, um, these killer um, bacteria cause, I think it's at this point, more than 11,000 deaths a year in the U.S. alone, bacteria that we used to cure with penicillin. Um, now they're killing people again. And um, different strains of bacteria around the world are acquiring this antibiotic resistance. How is that happening? Is that happening by old-fashioned uh, micro mutation, point mutation, incremental variation, the old classic Darwinian way? No. It can evolve in one kind of bacteria through that that method, incremental mutation. But then once it has evolved, once say uh, uh, staphylococcus has evolved resistance to penicillin, uh, an entire gene for that resistance can be passed in an instant from staphylococcus uh, into E. coli or into streptococcus or into salmonella and vice versa. So there are whole packages of genes for multiple antibiotic resistance that are moving around the world like lightning from one kind of bacterium into another by horizontal gene transfer. That's why it is a uh, lickety-split, urgent, uh, spreading global problem with mortal uh, implications for human health.
3: So, while we're talking about doomsday scenarios, um, <laughs> uh, is there something that we should worry about when we also are using gene editing tools like CRISPR um or various other ways of of making genetically modified organisms um within the framework of horizontal gene transfer that maybe you know we wouldn't have considered if if, if that wasn't possible?
2: Well, I think it's the opposite of that. I mean, obviously, we need to be very concerned as a society about the purposes to which these fancy, amazing new gene editing technologies, such as CRISPR, are put. Uh, And that's a serious um, discussion that that has to include the general public as well as policy experts and scientists. You know what are the limits? What are the appropriate limits to the gene editing that can be done using these fancy tools? But some people, some people are really uh, 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 have have been opposing genetically modified organisms for a long time on the basis that well, it's just not natural. Moving. Genes from, from one species into another, moving a gene from a jellyfish into a tomato because it protects it from, from frost is, is a horrible and unacceptable thing to do. Why? Because it's unnatural. Well, what this story tells us is um, yeah, we need to be concerned about what we do and what the consequences may be, but, uh, but people, it's not unnatural. It's been happening in the wild, in the natural world, for oh, three billion years.
3: Well, I think that's a great place for me to remind our listeners uh, that David's book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life, is now available at booksellers everywhere. David, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
2: Thank you, Indri, for having me. really enjoyed talking with you. As much as this
1: book is about you know, rethinking elements of our quote unquote evolutionary tree and ascribing much more to bacteria and how horizontal gene transfer works and all of these other components that make it tangled, as David says, you know, sir, so part of my read is that he's trying to put Carl in historical context, especially since, you know, Carl passed away in, in 2013 and say, hey, this this person had a massive contribution to the history of science, and and it hasn't been written that way
3: yet. Yeah, and I think that you know, there this kind of like speaks to the way that sometimes the work of certain scientists doesn't get the kind of attention that it needs, in part because of the personality of that scientist, uh, and you know, and from from what sort of you know, it, it sounds like the the kind of the ways in which that their, their work is being publicized does have, you know, is influenced by how much time they spend, you know, knocking on doors and telling people about it. But also I think that, you know, that we have a, a resurgence of, of interest in this kind of work because of new gene editing tools like CRISPR. Uh, and, you know, this, this idea that, you know, we can, we can create new lines uh, of genes and, and, and change genes much more rapidly. Uh, and that, that at, in fact, uh, evolution has been doing through natural selection has been doing this for us uh, in ways that maybe we take for granted.
1: Yeah. And I think you point to something important here. Like, this science is really fast moving. Like, horizontal gene transfer is not something we would have talked about 20, 30 years ago, even amongst some of the leading scientists in the world. And now it's sort of just commonplace. You know, in some ways, it's sort of like, Across that sort of cultural barrier. And so maybe 10 years from now, we're going to be talking about different systems in place altogether. Because when we talk about that percentage of our genome that seems like quote unquote junk DNA, that 8% that isn't really human, I, I could imagine that our explanations for how that got there and what that is is going to evolve pretty rapidly over the next 20 years.
3: Yeah. You know, it's just, it's so hard to. Sort of predict what the world is going to be like, and you know, kind of harkening back, just 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 thinking um, today about for completely other random reasons uh, about sort of the rise of um, importance of of sort of Chinese uh, scientific and technology innovations. Uh, you know, I just it's it's just so hard to predict what are kind of tools and and what the world is going to look like a couple decades from now. So I think it's important to sort of bring some of these scientists who have made major contributions uh, into the light so that we don't, you know, we don't, we don't, A, we're not, we're not, you know, redoing work that's already been done, but also that we make sure that we have a pretty thorough understanding of the systems that we're working on. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show.
1: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien.
3: And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. Vis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari at ScienceKish. See you next week.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022.